They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him manifest. These words of Peter from the Acts of the Apostles in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Alleluia, Christ is risen. Dear friends in Christ, on this day we gather to celebrate a great mystery, a mystery which is at the very heart of our redemption. Paul, writing to his disciple Timothy, writes, and if you've ever received an email from you, you know this, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of our religion. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. The things which we celebrate today are called a mystery, not in the sense that the things to which the Gospels testify are unsolved mysteries or hidden, but in the sense that they are the solution which has been made manifest. And we do not know yet how wonderful, how glorious, how dramatic that solution is. It is the testimony of the church that the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection by the Holy Spirit, his ascension to the right hand of the Father is the final answer to the problem of sin and death. The church in every place today offers the world a testimony to this resurrection that is public and unwavering. That these things did not happen in a corner they were not restricted to just a few select witnesses. Indeed, Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 15 of his first letter that as many as 500 people at one time were witnesses to the risen Christ. Peter, in, his selection from his, in this selection from his sermon before Cornelius read today, says, God raised him on the third day and made him manifest. This word, which is translated as manifest, refers to the understanding that God the Father has given the risen Christ to lost humanity as a proof of his saving acts, of his abundant grace. In other words, the exhibition and revealing of the whole of Scripture, which most powerfully conveys the love and redemption offered by the Father to sinners, is this, Jesus risen from the dead. It is to say, when men cursed the only begotten Son of God, when they nailed Him brutally to the cross, when they in great pride attempted to kill God, and even when they succeeded, that's the scandal of the Scriptures, they succeeded in killing God. By the Holy Spirit, Christ was vindicated in the sight of His enemies. Not just those who had killed him, but the one who tempted them to do it. And not just the one who tempted them to do it, but even death itself. O oh, death, where is thy victory? For the New Testament church, the end game for all of humanity is seen in the risen Christ. Indeed, one of my favorite, and you know this, St. Augustine thought that uh, in our risen bodies we'll all be 33 years old. Doesn't that sound... To me, it sounds miserable, but maybe it sounds good to you. Uh, he thought this because we'll be raised after the image of our Savior, who was 33 when he was raised. So it makes sense, right? 
But it is the testimony of the New Testament nonetheless that that is the end for not just those who believe, but for all. Some, of course, being risen to judgment, some to life. This great event, indeed the only new event in all of human history, a human being truly dying and rising victorious over the grave did not happen in secret. It did not happen in their imagination alone, nor was it some elaborate hoax. The church rests her testimony on a public, historic event. The witness of the women, the witness of the apostles, even the witness of the Lord's own mother. If it were a hoax, it would be the most remarkable event in human history. But as it were, the fact that it happens makes it the most remarkable event in human history. Those ancient Christians not only keeping their witness and testimony together, but actually going to their deaths. Indeed, some to crosses, proclaiming that risen Christ. Chuck Colson, who was a collaborator in the Watergate scandal in the 1970s, came to faith while in prison after reading a copy of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. He found in reading that book that he had been guilty of a kind of intellectual hubris. Here's what he says about the resurrection. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it wasn't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. I would go a step further. If the resurrection of Jesus is a fiction, I would be lying to you this morning. And I would be well served to rip off my vestments, walk out that door, those doors, and never ever come back. This is a colossal waste of time if the resurrection didn't happen. Look what happens, beloved, in the gospel today. We read, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb when the sun had risen. You'll note that the Sabbath has ended. It's as early in the morning as it possibly can be. And these are Jewish women. And on the day before, they had rested from all their work. What worry they must have had Worry over Jesus. Worry over his body. And they could not do anything about it. That their Lord's body would begin to put out a stench from the tomb. They likely did not know that it had been carefully anointed by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus with a hundred pounds of pure ointment, as John tells us, worth in today's terms something like three million dollars. Now, that's, that's, a, that's a fish tale if there ever was, but, but, but why would it be there if it were not true? But think of the worry of these women. So early as possible, they arrive at the tomb. And furthermore, it must be said that they went to the tomb knowing that Jesus was dead. 
Mark is specifically careful to mention in the preceding chapter that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome were all witnesses to the Lord's death. Indeed, he uses exactly the same list. That they were looking on from afar. They had also known him in Galilee, he says. These were not casual observers. They were insiders. And they were saying to one another, we read, who will roll away the stone for us from the door of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone was rolled back. It was very large. You see, they had arrived that morning without even thinking about a very crucial, critical question. How are we going to move the stone which closed off the tomb to get in there with our spices? They knew they couldn't lift it. In fact, they, no one really could have. This was the tomb of a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. It was meant to build, it was meant built to last, to keep the body inside safe from disruption so that it could decay in peace. That was the intention of Joseph. It was the intention of Nicodemus. And indeed, it was what the women should have known was going to happen. And yet there that stone was rolled back out of the way, no longer obstructing the way to that vision. Now there is some manner of debate here. Some believe that the stone was rolled away to make way for Jesus to leave it. Some say that Jesus himself had something to do with that. But there's a better reading. And the better reading is that Jesus in his risen body could not be obstructed by any obstacle whatsoever, for he had risen in glory. He could appear behind locked doors. He could disappear and reappear. What is a large stone to him? Nothing. The stone is rolled away, I would say, for another reason to show that that tomb is no longer a place to hide death away. No longer a place to keep death out of sight and smell. It was a place now of witness, open to show them and others that Jesus had triumphed over the shame of a gruesome death. That's what the women see that morning is an image of victory. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him as he told you. The women enter into the tomb. And this is important. Why do they enter it? It is as if they are saying, maybe the body's been stashed in a dark corner. It's some kind of curiosity that drives them. But they don't know what's happening to them. They're being joined to this event in a very real way. Their bodies are entering into that very same tomb. They already know that something significant has happened. Either the body has been stolen or something else has happened. These women saw him die. None of them could have dreamed of what actually happened. That is why the account of what did happen could not come from the mouth of a human source. No, an angel must tell them. 
an angel who understands what happened in the semblance of a young man. This angel says four things. First, he tells them whom they seek. If you pay attention, you'll see this. The women did not come seeking Jesus. They came to do what they thought was their duty in the, Messiah, in the face of an incredible disappointment, incredible shame. A would-be Messiah who didn't pan out and yet whom they loved immeasurably. They didn't come seeking him, and the angel knows the truth, however, that they have been called to a greater purpose, to seek Jesus. You might be here this morning with some other end in mind than this. You might be here to make your parents happy. You might be here to make your kids happy. You might be here to make your brother or sister happy, and that's all well and good. But know this, that this morning the Lord has called you here, and whether you know it or not, you are seeking Jesus of Nazareth. Next. The angel says that Jesus was crucified. Well, this is an important detail. To say that he was crucified is synonymous with he was killed. This is something the women know all too well. That's what crucifixion means. It wasn't a torture that had any other end. The end was simple, death, in the most terrifying, dehumanizing means possible. And yet, the next two things he says are shocking. He has risen. He has woken up. He is no longer a dead man. And second, or fourthly, he is not here. I love images like the one in the screen over there, and up there at the altar in our new beautifully done altarpiece. They depict the risen Christ appearing behind the scene. This is like my favorite form of dramatic irony in comedies, when someone says they're, they're, they're going on a rampage about someone and, and finally they say, he's behind me, isn't he? <laughs> Jesus does not linger in the tomb. He does not sleep in. He gets out as fast as possible. This shows us that death is still accounted to be a terrible thing, a horrible thing, an awful thing. But Jesus has shown what Paul would later say, Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death has no more dominion over him. Jesus is going back to Galilee where these women and the apostles first met him and there they will see him. But that gives no quarter to these women. Because we read that they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had come upon them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. The women have what I would call the only rational response to this news. They flee from the tomb in trembling, astonishment, and fear. They run but in silence. What is so terrifying? Well, it's rather simple. The angel has told them that they would meet the risen Christ. They have no basis for knowing what this would mean, what this would look like. It's a terrifying prospect, if you think about it. What would he look like? Would he still be bandaged up? Like a mummy risen from a tomb? Would he be covered from head to toe with the wounds from the scourging? 
Would he be bloody? Would he look like he had on the cross, only reanimated? When these women and the apostles finally do meet the risen Jesus, they are no longer filled with fear and astonishment, but with great boldness. Mark is quick to get to the point. They go into all the world proclaiming this great event and this great God, for they have met the risen Christ. Without meeting the risen Christ, the news of the resurrection should scare you, should instill fear in you. But Christians ever since this day have been willing to endure any pain, any suffering, to love the unlovable, to bring hope to a hopeless, to the hopeless, because they have lived fueled by an encounter with the risen Christ. It is not enough for them to know the news. They have met Jesus, risen from the dead. They have met the risen Christ in scripture. They have stood before the risen Christ in prayer. They have met the risen Christ in each brother and sister in the church, and they have eaten the risen Christ in the Eucharist. For the Christian is one who has been joined to Jesus in his death and resurrection, dead to sin and buried in the waters of baptism and risen to a whole new life in the light of the risen Christ. And today that will be the case for five children who will be joined to the risen Christ in a way that will not be immediately understood by them. Indeed, sometimes it might fill them with fear. But through their lives, we pray that the veil will be pulled back more and more, that their faith will seek to understand, and that they too will join in the witness of the saints who have met Jesus too. Perhaps today you came here not expecting that you too would meet the risen Christ. Perhaps the very idea of it fills you with fear and trembling, the prospect of meeting a man raised from the dead. Perhaps it is the prospect that Jesus is Lord, and if he is Lord, then you must follow him and him alone, and you must do, for, do so for the rest of your life. Perhaps you were baptized long ago. See what was done for you this day. You were made a member of Christ, a child of God, an inheritor of the kingdom. So meet the risen Christ you will, make no mistake, but will it be to judgment, to condemnation, or to life? Run to meet Jesus today. Run to meet him, crucified and risen from the dead. Run in silence if you must. Run to have your fears dispelled. Maybe you were never baptized. Maybe you've never been a Christian. See what is possible for you too, who come at the 11th hour. See the life of redemption and grace which the Lord has wrought. To you we join as Christians with the saints, the apostles, the martyrs, and yes, those women who went to that tomb in proclaiming to you that Christ is alive. He has defeated the grave and all for you who otherwise would be captive to sin, fear, and death. Yes, alleluia. There's no other word for it. Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. Alleluia.